We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 this morning. Luke 24, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 27, the account of the resurrection from Luke's gospel here. Luke 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he said, when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all the things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of, of these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have, not, have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's turn uh, to uh, Ecclesiastes. You'll find that in the section of wisdom literature in your Bible, which is uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And uh, Ecclesiastes is a short little book, but it talks about something I thought I would try this morning. I don't know how it's going to work, but you bear with me. Um, On Friday, we talked about the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And I didn't have a parallel passage that I could go to that I felt would work how I was thinking about things this weekend uh, for a man of joy. But he is a man of joy, and we can also be people of joy. And I want to share a little bit of that with you, why. But maybe from a little bit more of a melancholy perspective to start with. And the title of my message this morning is, What is Life All About? What is Life All About? And I want to give you the truth this morning, try to move us at least in this direction that the search for meaning in life is resolved at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. The search for meaning in life is resolved at the cross and at the resurrection. So I don't intend to cover in detail the basic facts of Resurrection Sunday today, as, or as most people call it, Easter. Uh, our assistant, uh, Pastor Jansen, laid out much of that detail in his message earlier this morning. Uh, when he uh, took us to the book of Acts and a number of other places in Scripture. He spoke about the historical facts and also the theological meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The plain fact of the matter is that as Christians, we unashamedly confess that we are convinced that Jesus not only died by crucifixion on a cross outside of Jerusalem, but that on the third day he rose again from the dead just as he predicted that he would. And in fact, just as how the Old Testament predicted hundreds of years before that. We're not ashamed to say that. That is foundational to the Christian faith. Please, don't doubt that basic historical, scriptural, theological truth. As Christians, you cannot. Although I know that many of you have gone through periods or phases in your life where you've said, is that really real? Did that really happen? Yes, it did really happen. Uh, The history is clear. The effects of the work of Christ are clear. The scriptures are clear. He arose from the dead. And this happened early on the very first day of the week, the Lord's Day or Sunday. And this this is why we commemorate Resurrection Sunday on Sunday. And also, every Sunday we meet because we are ones who follow Christ. It's not just that uh, the first day of the week came to be that by accident. It's that we have set it that way because we want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And even from as far back as society goes, hundreds and thousands of years on a modern calendar, we have selected Sunday as the first day of the week because of what Christ did on that day. This means that I am going to be personally opposed to any opportunity attempt to change the calendar to start on a Monday every week. You know, it doesn't start on Monday. This is the first day of the week. We come to give Christ our best on the first day of the week. Without the death and resurrection of Christ, the whole of Christianity falls to pieces and becomes nothing more than a bunch of moralistic proverbs to fuel self-improvement efforts or help us to feel good about ourselves. Without the work of Christ, there is no power 
There is no relationship. There is no substantial reality. And in fact, there is ultimately no God in religion. It would thus reduce, if there were no resurrection, to one among many other humanistic efforts to appease a make-believe God so that we could become better people in our limited time on the earth. That is, if the resurrection of Christ were not true. But it is true. We are certain, based on the sound eyewitness testimony and the writing of God and his spirit in the Bible, that the events of Easter are, as we just have explained, that Jesus miraculously and bodily rose from the dead. Bodily rose from the dead. Not just ethereally, not just virtually, not just... uh, in an appearance or ghost-like form, but in a real body. The body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. Of course, repaired, fixed, improved, glorified, but it was still that same body. The meaning of this is that Christ conquered death, and the thing which causes death, that is rebellion against God, or what we more commonly call sin. He also, in his death, not only conquered death and sin in an abstract, but took our penalty upon himself in his death. He laid down his life for us in an act, in in the pinnacle act of selfless substitution. You've seen acts of of substitution like that. I just just read of one where some mountain uh, climbers were climbing and uh, one of the older ones, there was three of them, I believe, uh, was climbing. They saw a huge block of ice about to come down, I mean, tons and tons of ice. And uh, I think it was, I'm, I'm not sure now, but I'll say it was a woman who pushed a young 20-year-old woman to the side, and she was crushed by the ice herself, but this other woman was saved. That is a selfless act of sacrifice. And you see those portrayed in media and the movies, and you see them sometimes in real life. But this is the, the prototypical act of sacrifice that, that kind of informs all of those others. He loved us and laid down his life for us. He gave himself for us, even though we didn't deserve it. You know, maybe for a good person, someone would do that, but not for, not for sinners, And this is why Christians place so much importance on the death and resurrection of Christ. It is central to our faith. But instead of focusing on that set of truths this morning, what I would like to do first is demonstrate and explain that in every human there is a sense, an understanding of something beyond our physical and material existence. We're often focused on the here and now, on the, the this and the that of these things or those things or these activities and those entertainments, but there is far more to what we call life than that. Some of us have had a sense of that more to life from our youth. Others, a less refined sense of it until perhaps later in life when you have time to sit back and reflect on what has happened during your lifetime. But this thing that's inside of us, leaves us with a sense that we lack a grasp on the ultimate meaning of life and causes us to have a desire for more. This then leads to my second goal, not only to talk about this idea that there's a sense in us of something beyond, but also that we would see that in the Christian faith, centering on the resurrection of Jesus, there is the answer to this feeling of trying to grasp the meaning of 
of what is beyond our present lives. So let me do those two things this morning. That's it, just those two, although you'll probably say, why are you talking so long on those two things? But I'm going to try to explain them and lay them out for you. The first, by going to the book of Ecclesiastes where you turn this morning and think about the meaning of life with Solomon. We call him an ancient sage, wise man, and king. Solomon. He wrote a book 3,000 years ago, and we call that book by the title in English, Ecclesiastes. But it has another name. In Hebrew, the name is Kohelet. Kohelet, one who calls together a, an assembly of people to listen to his wisdom. And this book, Ecclesiastes, is about the true meaning of life. What it is is a record of his explorations of life's meaning and our role in this world and God's sovereign control of it. And if anybody had an opportunity to do an exploration like this, he had it. He had all the resources, all the time, all the money, everything that one would need to pursue this uh, experiment, if you will, perhaps thought experiment in some ways, perhaps life uh, experiment, actual experience in other ways, and he ponders many things that people think about in our modern era as well. I think you'll be amazed that, just as he says, there's nothing new under the sun. There are a lot of things that he thinks about in this book that we still think about today. In chapter 1, in verses 4 through 7, he says, One generation passes away and another comes, but the earth abides, <clears throat> it seems, forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind... He talks about the rivers running into the sea. Why do the rivers always run into the sea and the sea is not full? Well, we think we understand that better. But if you think about it, it is a little bit strange. Everything in life is a cycle. As such, he says in verse 1-3, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? In an agrarian society, you plant in the spring and you watch it grow and water it and weed it and harvest it in the fall, and then you wait till the next spring and you do it all over again. And you do it all over again. And you do it all over again. And it seems like, what's the profit in this? If you're a little bit more on the melancholy side in the moment, perhaps, or that's just your, your tendency, you might ask with him, why? But we are told the best approach is to wisely enjoy the gifts that God has given to us. Solomon commands a simple way of thinking about life, not frustrating ourselves or making ourselves sick by getting too deep into the weeds. In this way, wisdom and knowledge lead to grief, he says. You know, if you, if you stop and think about how bad things are in the world, you will get depressed pretty quickly. That's what he's saying. It leads to grief. But to lead a life without wisdom is even worse than that, he says. So he's thinking. He's thinking with us here. Solomon explains how he tested this theory of pursuing happiness with all kinds of riches and all other kinds of activities and projects. He built things. He loved women. He listened to music. He had servants. He did all kinds of international exploits. He did everything to find what it would be that would make him happy or give meaning to his life. But he found that there was an emptiness to all of it. He knew those things had been done in the past. If you look in chapter 2, I saw in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, 
What does it accomplish? Chapter 1, verse 10. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come after. It's so hard to figure out life, isn't it? Whatever we try to do, we're going to find out, you know what? It's already been done. Some variation of it, you know, not the same exact thing, but some variation. In chapter 3, he explains there's an appropriate time for every event in life. You're probably more familiar with this from an oldies song than you are from the Bible. But there's a time to be born and a time to die, he says. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, to break down, to build up, to weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance, to cast away stones, to gather them, to embrace, to refrain from embracing, to gain, to lose. There's a time for all of life's events. But then in chapter 3, verse 11, this is kind of the central point of this portion of my message. He comes to this somewhat enigmatic phrase, and listen to it in chapter 3, verse 11. God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. There's something more to life than the unending cycle of activity. He explains, Solomon does, that God has built something into the human image, into the human psyche, into the human mind, that something is called eternity in the heart of people. And with that eternity, he says, yet, the end of verse 11, no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. There's a somewhat frustrating reality that we cannot figure out all of what God is doing in the world. What exactly is this eternity in our hearts? I did a paper on this years ago, and I came to this conclusion. Eternity is a sense that there is time long past. There is time yet far into the future, but it's more than that even. It's more than simple self-awareness. It's more than the understanding that time is passing. It includes all of that, of course. It's part of the image of God built into humankind, that whole image. And particularly the eternity idea distinguishes us from the animals. Animals don't have eternity in their hearts. They don't have the self-awareness like we have in our hearts. So what is this eternity? It is a cognitive capability that allows man to reflect on the arrangement of events in his own life as well as to go beyond his own time and consider that which was and that which yet will be. That's eternity. When we can think about the things in our own lives and we can try to connect them to things that have come before us and things that are yet to come after us. And that is a marvelous capacity that we have to not just live in the here and now. You know how important that is? You can think ahead. You can think behind. I was just speaking with our brother here who was right in the thick of Vietnam and saying I couldn't do that because I wasn't born until the end of the hostilities there in that place. But I can read about it 
and I can think about it, and I can empathize with those whose shoes were in it, and the problems that they had, and and how they weren't received well when they came back home, pitifully as that was, I can, you can do that too because you have eternity in your heart. You have this sense of what was and what is and what will be after this. But even though we have that, the capacity to think that way is limited because we are finite, yet more limited because we're sinful. But let's just focus on the fact that we're finite creatures with finite minds, finite processing capabilities, although we cannot think, we can think rather about the meaning of life, we're unable to come to a conclusion of the matter. We can't encompass all of it in our minds. It's impossible for us to complete our search for meaning in a fully satisfying way. And I also think about eternity in terms of not only time, but also space. I I sometimes have thought this over the years. Where are we anyway? Where are we? I'm not talking about Ann Arbor at this GPS, you know, this, this latitude and longitude. Where are we in everything? You know, I, I had years ago a T-shirt when I was a teenager. It was a dark blue shirt with a picture of the Milky Way galaxy on it. It had an arrow. You are here. You know, like a map in a hospital where you're trying to find what room to go to. You are here. Yeah, you are here. But where is that? And where are all of those galaxies? Where is it? We have a sense that there's something beyond what is even beyond what we can see. That's eternity in the heart of of people. Somehow God has made us be able to think so abstractly like that. But it's as abstracted as as it is, it's not meaningless. It's important. The wise preacher continues by reminding us in chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to this. This is 3,000 years ago, remember. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Look at chapter 3 again, verse 17, two verses down. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Remember I said there's a time for everything? Well, there's a time for judgment too. A time for judgment. He also, Solomon did, observe that from outward appearances, we seem to be like the animals. We seem to die, die like the animals. What, is, what, what do we do with an animal when it dies? We dig a hole in the ground and we bury it. You know, I don't know how many of you buried a pet, a dog, a cat, buried a, a, a critter that you don't care for, like a snake. Have you buried a horse before? Mm, that is a sad deal to have to get a backhoe out and bury a horse. I've been there. And what do you do with a human when we die? You bury them. So see, from an ancient's perspective, you look at that and you say, what, it looks like we're just like animals. We live, we're born, we live, we die, we're buried, and we're done. But we're not the animals. We've already made that uh, statement. But the wisdom teacher then muses about the human spirit later on in 
verse uh, 18, he says, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Yes, like them. But then notice what he says in verse 21. Who knows? The spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. So he's expressing some lack of certainty. Can I call this perspective that he has a somewhat ancient perspective on the matters of life and death? The author doesn't have the benefit of further revelation like what we have. The, the, the eternity that we look at as Christians, as we've been informed, is much brighter, is much more uh, clear, detailed, than what Solomon had at his disposal because there were 1,100 years yet further of divine disclosure that had to happen. Let me carry on. It also seems to our wise sage that the evil in the world is so bad that it would be better to not have come here in the first place. Does it seem like that to you sometimes? Chapter 4, that's what he says. I, I lo Look, the tears of the oppressed but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, he says, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living. Yet better than both is he who never has existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. You can, you can kind of sympathize with that thought, can't you? I mean, we can't go undo ourselves and say we're not here, we're here. We're, we have to deal with it now, but, but it is vexing. We, we, uh, you know, Solomon then experiences wealth, and he says, look, wealth itself, everybody wants wealth, but he says wealth brings anxiety and trouble. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The laboring man who just goes out on the job and works and comes back home, he doesn't have to worry about that stuff. The boss worries about that stuff. He just comes home, eats his meal, talks to his wife, goes to sleep. He doesn't have to worry about anything. Simple labor seems a lot better in, in ways than pursuits of lots of stuff. We labor for food and other basics like shelter and clothing, but our soul is not satisfied with this, he says. We, we inherently recognize that we're more than just a body and there must be more meaning than just labor and provision of sustenance over and over and over again. There's something, as we've said, beyond the mere physicality of life. Another serious conundrum he runs into, and we're just really giving an outline of kind of the highlights of the book here because it's serving our purpose of showing that there's something we have to deal with very seriously, and it's troubled people for, for millennia, these kinds of thoughts. Anybody that thinks about life seriously comes to the conundrum that many times the outcome in life for a person is opposite of what you expect. You know, a young person in the flower of life with all their life ahead of them gets in a tragic accident and dies. Why? Why couldn't that happen to some wicked person or some person that was 95 years old that was on the you know, door out anyway? But it didn't. Or why does a wicked person prosper in his wickedness and the rich grow richer in their evil and the poor who have a heart for God don't? Sometimes the righteous die and the wicked live on. In other ways, we see a common fate for people that seems to make level, a life rather have a level of meaninglessness. I mean, whether you're rich or poor, 
good or bad, clean or unclean, smart or dumb, fast or slow, religious or irreligious, you all die. Everybody experiences things in life like accidents and poverty and cancer and death and crime. Does it really make a difference how you live? Or should you just live however to get by the best you can? Another thing that he observes, that there has to be more to life than what we see because, just because of evil. You have to be able to say in your heart, I think, there, there's got to be something better than this. There has to be something better than what we're seeing today. And it's not going to be found in some human-created utopia, which is just going to be darkness and gloominess and nothing, nothing better than what we've already experienced and probably worse if somebody tries to design a utopia that really works. It never will work. That simply cannot be right, can it, to have all this evil? And you're correct. But if you stop there, we're not encountering everything that God has told us. Kohelet, the preacher, says that life is better than death, and yet we ask, how is it, if life is better than death, then why is the longest part of our existence, from the ancient sage's perspective, why is the longest part of our existence in death? You live for 70 years, how long are you dead for? (laughs) A long time. I mean, think of our friends who have passed recently, or Christians from 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. They were alive maybe 30 or 40 years, and now they've been dead for hundreds. Why is it that the longest period of our existence is in death? Frustrating, isn't it? These are the musings of an author 3,000 years ago who does not have the benefit of the fuller revelation that we have today. He couldn't figure out what God was doing. We can figure out better, and we'll see that in just a moment. Our author noticed that wisdom is better than strength, it's better than war, it's better than the shouting of fools. Wisdom. He reminds us in chapter 12 as we come to the end that that God is our creator. We know this intuitively. He is our creator. And after all is said and done, we become frail and we age out of this life. The silver cord is loosed, the golden bowl is broken, poetically spoken, words about death, but that poetry doesn't do much to make death sound better, does it? And after a careful and prolonged study in chapter 12, the author, Kohelet, writes his conclusion. The conclusion of the whole matter, he says in verse 13, is this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, in that exposition, I'm just realizing I didn't do a good job of one particular theme in the book. And that is Solomon, from his perspective, that ancient sage, without the benefit of all the new information that we have, did say this. Because of what God has given to us, despite the frustrating enigma that life is, that we ought to enjoy the gifts that God has given to us. He's given us good food when he has, enjoy that. He's given us a spouse when he has, enjoy her or him. Uh, he's given us things, simple things like perfume. He even mentions that in here. Enjoy those gifts that God has given to us 
judiciously, not sinfully, and that is a good thing for man to do in this time period. But all of that leaves us with the feeling of more. Can I have more? Can I understand more about what life is about? And so I want you to to, uh, kind of take you to the next step in that is ask you to go to Romans chapter 4 and just think about this text for a moment, which is going to open up for us that Christ is that more that we need. In Romans chapter 4, verse 23, it says, regarding the doctrine of justification by faith, that we're not justified by works, but by God's grace through faith. Now, it was not written for his Abraham's sake that faith was imputed to him for righteousness, but also, he's saying, also it was written for us that it, that is faith, should be imputed to us for righteousness who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then about Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now this is a very thought-provoking verse of Scripture, which is a great summary of the theology of Easter weekend because he was delivered up for our offenses Friday He was raised for our justification Sunday. Jesus, the Son of God, was delivered or handed over to something, to this this because of our offenses. Now, we know what he was handed over to. He was handed over to die on a cross. He was handed over to receive the wrath of God. And this is a passive verb. Did you notice that, that he was delivered up because of our offenses? Who did the delivering? Who delivered him? Who handed him over? You might say, well, Judas did. Well, that's not really what's meant here, but Judas did hand him over. He handed him over for money. Well, the Jews did. Pilate said, Pilate knew, and the Bible says this, that they had delivered him up because of envy. But this text says he was delivered up because of our offenses, not because of Judas's greed nor the envy of the chief priests of Israel, but he was delivered up because of our offenses. And God did the delivering. This is a divine passive, as it's called. God handed him over. God allowed him to suffer at the hands of the Jewish and Roman leaders. It was our offenses that put Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. Remember those offenses, those wickednesses that that Kohelet talked about in Ecclesiastes, all that vexing stuff? Our offenses put him on the cross. Let that sink in. Mine was the guilt. Thine, the cleansing blood. The parallel phrase to this first one, who was delivered up because of our offenses, reads this way, and he was raised because of our justification. He was raised from the dead. This is the basic Christian creed. When you become a Christian, you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead. That is like 101. I mean, that's like 100. That's like 99 level. That's not even 100 level. That's the very beginning of the Christian faith. Raised here is another divine passive. Who did the raising? Well, certainly not Judas, not the disciples, not the chief priests, not us. God did the raising. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead in conjunction with the power of the Spirit of God and 
Christ himself who took up his life again. But then the phrase, the final phrase, because of our justification, this pause, caused us to pause and consider how, well, what does this parallel mean? I mean, was he, was he delivered up because of our offenses in the same way that he was raised because of our justification? Not exactly. He was delivered looking back because of our offenses. Our offenses came first. Then he was handed over. Then he rose again from the dead. Then our justification is secure. So the because in the first case is looking back on our sins. The because in the second case is looking forward to our justification. So the because there has a slightly different meaning. And that's the order. Our sin, Jesus delivered to be crucified. Jesus then rises from the dead. And then our justification is now secure if we believe in him. And this, this certainty of what God has done in Christ untangles a lot of the problems that our author in Ecclesiastes had in his quest for life's meaning. Look, I know some of you are sitting here and you're saying, this is going on and on and on. But I'm saying this because I know that some of you are, have, or will come in. Some of you young people sitting here will come to a point in your life when your brain is awakened and you're saying to yourself, what is life all about anyway? And I want you to remember that in the church, we talk about these things. We don't shy away from talking about them. We're telling you exactly the answer to the kinds of questions you're asking. The work of Christ answers this question of the quest for, the, for life's meaning. It opens up to us an entire new phase of life, the afterlife in a totally new state, righteousness. And although it's not explained in detail in these few verses we just looked at in Romans, Jesus died not only to save his people from their sins, but also to transport them into his kingdom, both on this earth and in the new heavens and the new earth. And in that kingdom, the frustrations that Solomon talked about are going to be basically erased. The evil that seems to rule, the oppression that seems to have the ascendancy, the injustices of all sorts, the meaningless cycle of life, all of that is going to be done away. The frustrations that he expressed will be fixed. So greatly, so will be greatly reduced in the first phase and eliminated in the second. Sin, that is. Sin will be reduced in the first phase of the kingdom and eliminated in the second phase no injustice will carry the day. Labor will not be fruitless. The cyclical nature of life will not be a drudgery, but it will be a delight. Eternity then will make sense. But see, this was not graspable before because Solomon didn't see Christ the door into eternal life that opened up that extra phase. He just said, look, we live and we die. Blah. We say, look, we live, we die, and the longest period of our existence is neither life on this earth, nor death, but the longest phase of our existence is eternal life, that part that lives, uh, that lives on forever after we pass away. Now, some things are still going to be ungraspable in, in life because we're not infinite. We don't understand everything. But with the advent of the Lord into human history and the added wisdom we can learn through his New Testament revelation, we can take a good bite 
out of that frustration that we have because of the eternity in our hearts. Okay, remember eternity? Big issue. I can't get the meaning of life. But you know, when you come to Christ, you can trust God for that which you don't understand, and you can realize a whole bunch of new things that you can understand. Remember the problem of life being better than death, but death being the longest state of our existence? Well, Jesus shows us that that was short-sighted. He went into the domain of death. Between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, where was he? Talk about that question, where am I? Where was he? Descended into the abyss, as it were, and proclaimed victory to those who were incarcerated there, emptied out paradise and brought them to the heavenly existence with the Father. That's what the ancient Christian creeds say and what we believe happened. And so he knows what he's talking about because he's been there. He's been there. Yeah, talk about keys. He has the keys of of death and of life, of Hades and of heaven. He owns it all. We know more now than Solomon did back then, as wise as he was. Not everything, but more. So we can make a more accurate assessment of what God is doing in the world. It's a less frustrating assessment than Solomon offers because the afterlife portion is so much more well understood now that Jesus has opened it up to us, died for the sin which causes all the vexation and sorrow and suffering in the world, and allows us, if we have faith in him, to enter into his kingdom. He promised that he will raise everybody from the dead, by the way, both good and evil, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame and contempt. On the way to our next home, the Lord Jesus has told us in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die, and then the... Well, that's what Solomon said. He knew there was judgment coming. He didn't exactly know that it was going to be before the great white throne for unbelievers or the, the bema seat of Christ for believers and be evaluated for our works. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge. Why? He's a fair judge because he's the son of man. He's not some far off deity or some angel that does not know our experience. He knows our experience perfectly. And so he's suited to be a perfect judge for all of mankind. We will stand before him someday and experience that inquiry into our lives, whether good or bad, whatever we have done. There's a reward for believing in God and living rightly in this life. So yes, there is profit in living. When we look at it from the ancient standpoint, we see the cycles of starts and ends and starts and ends, and it seems meaningless, but it's most definitely not meaningless. You know, when you're coming, if you're in that depressed state and you're saying, oh, it's all meaningless, why, can't, why carry on? Don't stop in Ecclesiastes. Go on to the New Testament. Go on to see what Jesus has done for you. Go on to t- look at his love for you. Furthermore, the, the end outcome for everyone is not the same. You say, oh, we all live, we all eat, we all drink, we all sleep, we all die. We're just like the animals. No. In the end, some of us will be in heaven and some of us will be in hell. There will be a difference. There will be a big difference. Some are saved and some are not. Some live eternally and some die eternally. Some are rewarded and some are paid back the just wages 
of their sin. What you decide and what you do in this life is therefore very consequential. It's very important. It's critical. You can't just throw up your hands and say, oh, it's all meaningless. Job 19, we saw this morning. Job, perhaps 4,000 years ago, said, my Redeemer lives. Because you will see him in the future and you will face an inquiry before him about the conduct of your life, it is most valuable for us to live in the way that he directs us to live. And that's true even if we don't understand all the details of how he has arranged things. This is why God calls us to have faith in him. Listen, what is faith? Faith is not a leap into the darkness. It's not turn off all the lights, stand up on this table, and jump out and hope that somebody catches you. That's not what faith is. Okay, Never think faith is that. Faith is not a mystical filler of the gaps for things that we don't, don't know. We just say, oh, whatever. Faith is the basis of a personal connection with God where you trust him. You trust the doctor when you're asleep on the operating room table, don't you? That he's going to cut the right thing, take the right thing out, not take the wrong thing out. Hopefully that's well-founded trust. (laughs) If you're asleep, there's nothing you can do. They put that chemical into you and you're out. Next thing you know, you're waking up afterwards. Time has passed. You trust your roommate won't hurt you while you rest. You trust your spouse to be faithful to you and do you no harm. You trust your friends to have your back and not betray you. You should also trust God to save you from sin and death and to rescue you to eternal life. And along the way, if you trust God to do that, can't you trust God in all the things you don't understand? I don't understand that part of the meaning of life or why it's this way or why it's that way. That's what trust is. When you're casting yourself to his mercy and his love and his kindness. Now, this theme deserves a whole lot more thought. For example, we could add that Jesus' work on the cross points us to the ultimate answers for the problem of evil in the world. People complain today, if God is so powerful and he's so good, why hasn't he done anything about evil? Look up there. Has he done nothing about evil? He died for evil. So don't tell me that he's done nothing about evil. He doesn't do it on your time and in your way according to your finite little sinful mind. Get over yourself. He's done something far wiser than we could ever imagine. To provide for salvation and to provide for satisfaction from sin and all the wickedness that goes on in the world. Christ's work helps us to know how to live well and how to die well, how to age well. It helps us so that we can look forward to things after we die and after the Lord returns to the earth. It tells us the Christ cross work does, why we ought to fear God and keep his commandments because he's going to judge us. It greatly lessens the pain the cross does in the work of Christ and the resurrection when a loved one departs, no matter what age because we're going to see them again if we're in Christ. It's just a matter of time. It's just a temporary goodbye. 
Christ's work points us to a golden age in the future of the world. His resurrection brings meaning to our work when it's done for the Lord. Even that farming cycle that I initiated with at the beginning, when we plant and water and weed and harvest and plant again and water and weed and harvest and do it all over, when you work for the Lord, there is value to it because our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15. That's the capstone of Paul's argument about the resurrection. The resurrection is true, and your Christian faith is not empty. So I'd like to say, although I haven't fully proven this because of the length of this message, knowing Jesus does not merely quell the longing to know the meaning of life. It's not like that leap of faith just just erases the longing. No, rather it fills the longing and satisfies, informs that desire to know. When you become a follower of Christ, you have a life-giving connection to him who is the source and sum of all wisdom. He is the fount of all knowledge, the giver of all comfort, the forgiver of all sin. He's the creator of all people, the sustainer of everything, the designer of the entire universe, the caregiver of the entire human and subhuman creation. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, the maker of time and eternity, and the Savior and judge of all. We ought to consider life as God has given it to us. Think about it with all humility because we're limited creatures under God. We come at life not with resignation because it's so difficult or we can't understand it, but we can come at life with the joy that we can, to a certain extent, have a grasp of what God is doing in the world and what Christ has done for us in showing us the way to the Father. Knowing God and his risen Christ is the way to a joyful life even as it moves us through the obstacle course that we know that life is. Yes, it's an obstacle course, but God has given us the ability to maneuver with joy that obstacle course because we know the resurrection of Christ puts him in the driver's seat, so to speak. Well, hopefully that's helpful to you as we ponder the meaning of life and the the kind of fulfilling of that meaning in Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Then we'll sing our closing hymn. Heavenly Father, thank you for the exposition of your word, for the thoughts that we're able to share today. May it induce in us thinking now and later on this afternoon and throughout the week as we think about what you're doing in life and what you would do with us. I pray that there are some here today who, seeing this, may consider the claim of Christ the historical truth that he rose again from the dead and what that implies for us as people. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.